Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Failure, a podcast where we share life's greatest lessons through stories of setbacks. I'm your host, Rainer, and today I'm very honoured to have our second guest ever on this show, and he's none other than Dr. James Lim. Dr. Lim is currently a professor of economics at the Essex Business School, one of the top business schools in Europe. Previously, he also worked as chief economist at the Third Rock Group, an investment and wealth advisory firm. In his earlier years, he went to primary school at Catholic High, then spent his secondary and JC days in Raffles Institution and RJC. He then obtained his undergraduate, master's, doctoral, and postdoctoral degrees from various universities in the UK and US. Hi Prof Lim, a very warm welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for being one of my very first guests on it. Rena, the pleasure and honour is all mine, and thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, okay, I mean, to, to get the ball rolling, could you tell us a bit more about, uh, say, your childhood growing up and your schooling days in RI? Well, um, like most Singaporean kids, my childhood was not exactly eventful. Uh, many of our days were spent in wild abandon in our wandering estates. I was, I used to ride a bicycle, so I wandered around Singapore in that little way in, in my bike on my bike. And um, I grew up mostly in the eastern part of Singapore. Uh, I, I now no longer live there, but uh, the east has a place close to my heart. Um, but if you know the geography of Singapore, as I'm sure uh, all of you know, um, that is relatively far from where both Catholic High ended up being, at least in, in, in my later primary school years, and then subsequently RI. Um, and, and even further from at that time, what was RJC, which uh, now has since been subsumed into RI. Yeah, so in terms of growing up and, and intersecting with schooling, there was uh, quite a bit of travel, like most Singaporeans to, uh, have to do. And so plenty of time to dwell in our own thoughts uh, when we were not passed out somewhere on the bus. <laughs> Yeah, in, in particular, can you tell us a bit more? I know there are a lot of students listening into this. What sort of CCAs, uh, activities, or even your RA house, which one were you in? Okay, so I was in Buckley, I believe. That's the oh, green, the green one. one. Yes. Yes. And, um, well, the truth is house activities, something that you do maybe once a year when they have these inter-house sports and represent your house. And beyond that, uh, you associate yourself much more with uh, either your classmates or your EC mates. And as it turns out, um, yeah, well, at that time, we didn't call it co-curricular activities. We called it extracurricular activities, hence ECA. Uh, so at, in our time, we had to at least be uh, in two different uh, extracurricular activities. So one of them would have to be either a uniform group or a club and society, and the other had to be a sport. I see. Uh, and, and as it turns out, I, since this podcast is about failure, I didn't end up in either of my initial allocations or, or <laughs> attempts to join um, the sport or the club that I wanted to be in. So I was, okay. uh, I had chosen to do badminton. I wasn't a very good badminton player, but I somehow was attracted to it. And nevertheless, I did not succeed in, there were trials and I didn't succeed in getting through to them and eventually ended up um, being allocated to something else. And in that case, it was um, rugby. So I, I ended up pursuing rugby for 
uh, most of my secondary school years. In terms of uh, uniform groups, I started off in the band, and if you know, mm-hmm. the military band. Yeah, the military band okay. RAMB, and yes. if you know, having a commitment to both uh, the military band as well as rugby is a surefire way to tank your studies, mm. uh, which it did. And uh, at some point, I had to make a decision to try to extricate myself from uh, the military band, which was, to be fair, a, a difficult one. Um, but eventually, uh, I ended up joining uh, an extracurricular activity that a lot of my other rugby mates were in, which was scouts. Oh, nice. Probably know there are two scouts. Well, there were. I don't know if there still are two There are two scouts now. So I, I well, that, that, that I think there has always been for a long time. So I was in um, 2101 to 01 scouts. Uh, at that time, our patrols were named after um, Indian tribes. Not, not exactly very politically correct, but uh, <laughs> they were named after Indian tribes, African-American tribes. So we, we were called Indie Scouts at the time. Mm. So yeah, so those were my extracurricular, co-curricular activities that... Uh, I was part of when I was in school. I also, for a number of years, would be part of Raffles Players. So that's the uh, acting. Oh, the drama club, yes. Drama club, yeah. So th- that was uh, much more on an ad hoc basis, I guess. Every year or every few years, there'll be a big play and then um, you audition for positions in, the, in, in those. And I ended up sometimes being in the front of house and sometimes being the, in, in, as crew and sometimes... Uh, being an actor. So those were, I guess, the different ways that I was involved in. in. I see. Going back to your, your story of being rejected from your two initial choices, that's something that I can relate to because uh, I, when I did the trials for softball, I was also uh, rejected on the actual like, school platform where we had to pick our CCAs. But I really wanted softball, hence I wrote in to the teacher. Her name is Mrs. Lim. I'm not sure if you know her. And yeah, true enough, uh, she gave me another chance and I uh, ended up joining softball. I had my most wonderful four years in the CCA. I made lots of friends and yeah, it was really nice. I'm curious to find out how did you failing to get into your first two CCAs? How did that turn out? Um, I, well, let's just say that, well, I would never have been a very distinguished soft, uh, badminton player. Um, I didn't end up being a very distinguished rugby player either, uh, but it was something that I enjoyed doing and it was where I made lifelong friends. And well, over time, I, you know, you you know the common saying that if you spend enough time doing something, eventually you get reasonably decent yes. uh, at it. So after having played it for many, many years, eventually I I got to a decent level. But again, I was never, I would I would not say I was ever particularly, dis- particularly distinguished um, on the sports field. I see. That's something I think we can all learn. Like uh, maybe your first two setbacks were not setbacks, but instead redirections that made you the person you are today. And and not just that, Reina. I, I think even if they were indeed setbacks, yes, you have to look beyond the specific activity. In this case, it was playing rugby because what you take away after you leave the activity, the sport in this case, uh, isn't necessarily the skills you learn. I mean, how, how frequently will you use the skills of passing an oval-shaped ball, uh, 
some distance down the field. I mean, it's yes, that's or, true. You know, it's it's not something that you necessarily would use for the rest of your life. But my friends, whom I made in by playing rugby, these are still my friends today. We gather uh, and do silly things that we used to do <laughs> many years ago, um, and you know, they are till today my closest friends I have in life. So it's. Is these um, what you may initially think of as uh, secondary benefits of being in a particular sport or CCA that ultimately became uh, the lasting value that came from, from participating? Well, that's, that's quite striking. Even for, for me now, I kind of view my CCA as a way to learn skills, to kind of gain achievements and all. But yeah, I think you're right. In a few years, it'll be the friends that, that truly matter. Unless you become a professional softball player. Oh. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that won't happen for me. Uh, yeah. Uh, going back to the whole uh, notion of setbacks and failures, were there any other difficulties you encountered in these formative years in your life? Well, uh, Reina, I did not do very well in, uh, so as a consequence of being involved in too many CCAs and uh, not always being the most industrious student, uh, I did not always do well in, in my studies. In fact, uh, what happened was I did massively poorly from SEC 3 to SEC 4, um, and again, in, in between JC1 and JC2. And... Well, one of the consequences of that was I had to pull back on some of these extracurricular activities and focus, refocus on, on studies. Um, but so what had happened was that I ultimately had to make a decision to pull back on some of my extracurricular activities and focus uh, once again on my studies for the crucial years, right? So for the second half of secondary four, as well as uh, in the second half of JC. So I would say that as a student, obviously, that that is a significant setback. I barely got promoted between JC1 and JC2. If you know, um, so here's an interesting story for you. We, yes. we were to move from the first year of JC to the second year of JC. You need to have the equivalent of an A-level pass, an O-level pass, I don't even know if the, these bands still exist, but uh, what, what we call an A-level pass, so a grade that is E and above, right? Uh, yes. An O-level pass, which is this kind of a purgatory grade that is between, uh, below an E, but somehow above an F. So there's this purgatory grade uh, in between, and you have to have at least one O-level pass, and then you can fail two other subjects. Um, oh, okay. So, at the, at the time and the score I got for promotion was EOFF so I barely scraped through and with with, with that scraping through um, the E I secured was something like 45 and a half and oh. 45 so it's it was exactly at the border and uh, the two other worst students in in my year were both uh, surprise, surprise, rugby mates, um, <laughs> both of whom uh, also got EOFF. And uh, one of them now is um, a surgeon and, and a specialist, an orthopedic surgeon. And the other uh, yes. ended up 
as a real estate investor and is now running um, a multi-billion dollar uh, portfolio. So you can see that obviously. So Mm -hmm. clearly uh, the EOF says that the setbacks uh, for these guys at least uh, did not deter them from subsequently achieving excellence in life. Wow, yeah, that's very unexpected. I didn't expect you to share, but thanks for, so much for sharing uh, your vulnerabilities, especially with grades, something a lot of um, me, myself, my friends are quite obsessed with, I think right now, since it's our A-level year. Um, I'm interested to know, how did you get from your EOFF grade in JC to where you are now? I know it's such a long journey, but uh, were there any pivotal moments when you kind of got interested in economics and started studying? How for that? Yeah, so, well, I, I didn't take economics at the A-level. I was in what was called the medicine faculty. I don't know if you still call it that. Uh, very no. pretentious names, but uh, essentially we, we took biology, mathematics, uh, physics, and chemistry, right? So the, the subjects that will best prepare you for entry into the study of medicine at the university level. So uh, one of us ended up pursuing that, my, my orthopedic surgeon friend, but the others, uh, for us, we ended up with different paths. And I was, I think, always interested and fascinated by economics, but mm-hmm. I never uh, ended up pursuing it at the A-level. And um, what had happened was I, I was f- focused on just passing. And uh, I, I got, uh, at the time, I got grades that were good enough to get me into um, the National University, into the economics program there. Uh, And I had applied and also secured a position at University College London. So that was uh, one of the constituent colleges of of the University of London, uh, also in the economics department there. And um, the funny thing is, uh, of course, I ended up not going to either of those institutions. Uh, What had happened was when I was in the army. Um, so let's rewind a little bit. Before yes. I was in the army, okay. I was uh, trying out for for uh, combined schools for rugby, and I ended up um, fracturing my ankle as a result of that tryouts uh, of those tryouts. Well, that forced me to end up studying, of course. But at, at the same time, uh, it also meant that um, I spend a good part of my military years actually uh, in a downgraded um, status. What that downgrade means is that you end up having a lot of nights and weekends free, which allowed me to study part-time. So I ended up taking courses in computer studies and, and then subsequently rolled that into a bachelor business degree with a major in economics. And what that process meant was that by the time I finished my military stint, it no longer made that much sense to kind of reboot and either go to NUS or UCL. I was already about two and a half years, almost three years uh, into a degree. So ultimately, I just ended up going to finish the degree in the university that I ended up doing these distance studies in. So it's uh, an unusual path because, of course, uh, the, the university I ended up going to was called 
University of Southern Queensland. If you haven't heard of it, that's forgivable. It's a forgettable university. In fact, I, I tell people that I, I, I went to a directional university. A directional university hmm. is any university that has a direction in the compass in its name. Oh. Right? <laughs> yes. The University of, of, I don't know, Southwestern Arizona or the University of Eastern Kentucky, the University of Southern Queensland. So when it has to have a directional qualification, uh, there's, there's some exceptions. Northwestern is an excellent university, so is the University of Western Ontario. But beyond that, if you, you're going to have a direction in your university name, you probably aren't very good. Uh, and it was a little bit of a bold leap because I could have gone along a much more conventional route to, to head to either NUS or UCL. Mm -hmm. But again, it didn't seem to make sense to me to restart. And so I made kind of a calculated decision that I would just finish off at uh, this university that I had already started getting uh, credit for. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. On that same line of uh, studying and academics, academia, how did you actually end up uh, in your foray as a professor of economics? I'm sure your, your rugby uh, 14, 16-year-old self wouldn't have expected you to become an economics professor. I mean... Yeah, neither did any of my tutors, right? So my, <laughs> when, I, yes. when I got my A-level results, um, my, uh, I guess you call them the CT tutor, the, the main the yes. equivalent of a form teacher, right? He, he came up to me and he shook my hand and said, congratulations, James, I never thought you would make it. Um, <laughs> and so for, for him, and in fact, for myself, uh, I thought that, graduating from JC was the epitome of my academic achievements. Uh, and, and that was, you know, possibly the end of the road. Uh, well, in any case, uh, it, it turns out, as I explained, I, I ended up studying and um, doing fairly well in a degree in economics. And the key for me there was ultimately interest, right? Um, I was never very good at math, but Economics, at least um, at advanced levels, has quite a bit of quantitative elements. And at the very least, you have to be quite comfortable with elements of real analysis and multivariable calculus. You need to be comfortable with uh, statistics. And so they became instrumental. So in the sense that I decided I wanted to be an economist, I decided I wanted to be really good at economics. And to be good at economics, you would have to have a certain degree of fluency with mathematical tools. And so I suddenly saw a purpose in getting good at mathematics. And, and that itself was enough to make me devote uh, time, energy, and effort into the process of studying for uh, math, well, the, the, the requisite courses in university for mathematics. And you know, one thing one thing led to another. I knew I wanted to be a professional economist. You cannot be a professional economist essentially without some kind of graduate training. So I ended up pursuing um, a master's in London. And you know, after that was done, it became clear that even the master's uh, felt insufficient to me, and, and I wanted to go deeper into the subject into national economics, which was my chosen uh, subfield within economics. And so I ended up applying for and uh, pursuing a PhD in the subject. 
I see. Yeah, I, I love your whole journey of becoming an economist. I can particularly relate to the mathematics part because personally, for me, I'm a humanities student, and humanities students are not known to have, for their very strong mathematics, not at all, in fact. But I'm in fact interested in economics, so that is some purpose which uh, kind of encouraged me to pull up my math grades to do better in math. Um, I mean, as much as we, I love talking about economics, this one, this podcast is not really about economics per se. Uh, <laughs> could you tell us a bit more about your your days studying abroad? How was that like, and were there any challenges you faced? Um, so, for anyone that decides to make that foray, the the biggest change, obviously, is uh, the exposure to a completely different culture, and mm-hmm. the exposure to that culture while usually you're alone, right? Um, it's not always the case here. Yeah, if you ended up in, say, the LSE, for instance, uh, you, you would have enough of a critical mass of Singaporeans, many of you who probably went to the same JC as you did, so you wouldn't have uh, that sense, uh, that immediate sense of alienation. But at least where I was, um, I was possibly not just the only a Singaporean in the university. I was probably the only Singaporean in town. Um, and so it was something where I had to learn how to adapt to meeting with people that uh, were from very different walks of life, different backgrounds and, and different cultural experiences and expectations. And I think that is one of the leaps uh, at least at the cognitive level that you need to make. The other thing that you need to make is just this cognitive tax that you pay, that anyone pays when okay. they're exposed to something completely new. See, you, you don't realize it if having grown up in Singapore that you have come to uh, absorb a lot of things that you may now take for granted as that's just how we do it here. Even little things like the brand of shampoo you buy or uh, the type of cereal you consume, all that was shaped over the course of however many years that you spent growing up and maturing and, and making these decisions incrementally. When you move to abroad, to a new um, city, to a new country, all these decisions need to be made fairly instantaneously if you are going to survive, right? So if you go to the grocery store and you don't see the usual brand of cereal that you are used to consuming in the morning, you will need to make a decision about what you're going to buy. Um, and then you need to make that decision uh, hundreds of times over all sorts of things over which you are unfamiliar from food that you consume to clothes that you wear to where you're going to stay to consequential things like what you're going to choose, what what courses you're going to choose to study and so on and so forth. So the cognitive burden in the first three or four months when you move to a new location uh, is quite significant. And that's, I guess, the biggest shock to the system when you first move. Having moved uh, countries and continents several times, I can attest that it doesn't get any easier, Uh, especially if you don't even know the primary language of the place that you're moving to. It's, easy, it's a little easier if you're going for your studies and say you're going to an English-speaking country. At the very least, you can read the signs. But if you are in a country where the primary language isn't English, then you also have the additional burden of needing to confront 
new things, novel things in a completely different language. So the bottom line is that uh, you will have this shock to your system, mm-hmm. but the, the good thing is that um, most of most everyone ultimately emerges from that. And yes. as long as you're willing to break out of uh, your comfort zone, out of a cocoon that you have become accustomed to growing up in Singapore, you um, become a bit of a sponge in terms of absorbing new experiences. And you become a lot more receptive to the rich diversity of ideas, of thoughts, of mundane things that constitute this thing we call life uh, elsewhere in the world. Thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of our listeners who maybe intend on going overseas to study, myself included, will find that very interesting. Uh, my question then is, you know, you said being a sponge and all that. How did you actually overcome the initial three to four months of being in such a new, isolated environment? And I also read one of your Facebook posts where you mentioned you survived off uh, instant noodles, ramen for a period of time. How, how, what helped you to, to get through that period? Um, you, well, you, you get to a certain level of getting used to it. Uh, and so once you have built in, as I mentioned, the initial choices over what you need to do, um, once you get into a groove, so to speak, you become a lot more comfortable with then uh, pushing the boundaries of the choices that you have already made, right? So um, let's not have ramen every day and TV dinners every day, let's decide, okay, maybe today I will try to cook myself uh, a dinner. Or maybe you're not even that adventurous. You start off buying uh, a rotisserie chicken that you um, stretch over the course of two or three days into sandwiches, into uh, rice and chicken and so on and so forth. So so you you push the boundaries of what's possible um, given the choices that you have already made. So as you do so, you um, gain that experience of doing something different and something new that you are already doing in many ways in your intellectual life, right? Because you're there as a student, for instance, uh, but you are also doing that in terms of other uh, elements of life, such as what you choose to eat, what, where you choose to go. And now, mind you, there are people who never choose to go beyond that comfort zone, right? And I always feel that if you go abroad and you never choose uh, mm-hmm. to push those boundaries, then you're selling yourself short because as, of course you end up um, possibly a lot more comfortable because you aren't paying this additional cognitive tax. Uh, in other things, you can perhaps focus much more on your studies and perhaps excel more in your studies, but then uh, the richness of that overseas experience becomes diminished uh, in my view, because you didn't take the full advantage of um, the opportunities to learn and experience uh, a culture and lifestyle different from what you grew up and were used to. Yes, thanks for sharing that. I think it's very important uh, for youth nowadays to embrace new environments. You know, you need not, need not be going overseas, but uh, I know for many uh, listeners of this, uh, Tomorrow is our orientation first day for the JC1 students. And I think a piece of good advice for them would be to, you know, soak it in, soak it all in, the new friends. Uh, any any additional advice you have for these students? Well, I spent, so I, I went from RI, an all-boys school, to yes. RJ, which is a mixed institution. So I spent a lot of my first three months just chasing skirts. Uh, I do not necessarily 
recommend uh, doing so because it can be consequential for your, uh, among other things, your your studies. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was also a way for me to um, build a level again of comfort with interacting and uh, with the opposite gender. Right for long for the longest time in RI. I, I only knew boys' names, even till today. Um, you know, yes. Catholic High was also an all-boys school. So till today, I remember boys' names a lot more easily than I remember uh, girls' names. And that's just purely a function of the fact that for a good 10 years of my uh, educational journey, I was just in a single-sex environment. So, um, you know, again, you you will be exposed to a different experience, a different group of people and who, who have a very different worldview and perspective from you since they are of a different gender. And the more you learn how to embrace and empathize with uh, their worldview, the, the richer your own worldview will become as you absorb these additional influences. Liked what you're hearing so far? Here, Jameis share more about his experience with breakups, traveling abroad, and much more on the second part of this episode, out now on Spotify. 